Well, thank you for inviting me to come. And uh, it's my pleasure to share with you from the uh, things I have been learning about God's Word and its bearing on His purposes in the whole world and how we can partner with that. <clears throat> and uh, also, we'll be glad to share with you about the Tentmaker Project during the Sunday school hour following the church service. Uh, we've got some video clips and photos that we took uh, while we were in Uganda in May that uh, uh, should be fun to, to show. Let me uh, begin by reading the uh, kind of the central scripture that uh, this sermon this morning will revolve around, and that is the Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew, cha Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. ask you to show respect to God's word as it is read. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, convict us from your word, that you would teach us, encourage us. We look to your word to nourish us and to give us the direction in life that we need. I pray that you would give me your words to say that I might be faithful to you in teaching. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the most terrifying experiences I ever had as a child growing up in Alabama was uh, at one point when I was playing inside my parents' car in the driveway in front of our house. Uh, playing around in there, my parents were inside and uh, inside the house, and I'm here inside the car, and I accidentally knocked the transmission into neutral, and the car began to roll. <laughs> that was, that's one of the most panicky feelings that I remember ever having, was being in the driver's seat of this car as a young kid and having no idea what to do about it as this car is going out of control, rolling down the driveway towards the house. Uh, and you know, seeing my mom come running out the side door with screaming and my little brother with just this panicked look on, you know, standing next to the car and, and here I am just, what, oh no, what do I do? Uh, and the, you know, the sickening crunch of the car hitting the, the brick wall of the house at the end, and mom, you know, oh, just that whole feeling of everything is out of control, and I don't know what to do about it, uh, is, is, is a, it's a very scary feeling that, that you may have experienced in various ways before. I, I've had recurring nightmares about it as a kid, just that one experience. But, you know, when you're, when you're in you know, in, in charge of something, but you don't know how to control it, and it's going out of control. 
days when I get behind the driver's seat of a car, it's a very different experience for me. I enjoy it. Uh, I like, you know, watching the scenery going by, and I like uh, just, you know, exercising the skill of being able to maneuver the car, and I enjoy just feeling like I'm going somewhere. Uh, so what makes the difference uh, between when I was a kid and the car was moving and I was in the driver's seat and nowadays when I get behind the driver's seat of the car? What makes the difference? Uh, it's the training and experience that I've gained. Uh, my dad, I enjoy driving now because when I was 15 years old, my dad spent a lot of time with me in the little red VW Beetle bug uh, out on the side roads and uh, teaching me how to drive and go going through all the ins and outs of what I would encounter as a driver. And then over the years as I've gained experience in driving, uh, now it's an enjoyable experience. Um, but it's not so enjoyable when you're put in charge of something that you're not prepared to do. And that is the feeling, this feeling of unpreparedness that I have always imagined the disciples probably had when Jesus gave them the Great Commission. You imagine this group of you know, Galilean fishermen, mostly uneducated men, not very well-traveled men, uh, who have just over three years gotten some tr special training from their rabbi, Jesus. And now he says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then, very soon afterward, Jesus disappears into the clouds and leaves this group of dis ill-trained disciples wondering what on earth did that mean and how are we supposed to accomplish this? And when you think about them, it's, it's hard to think of them as, having, as being very successful in all that, too. They stuck around in Jerusalem and parted around, and maybe, you know, Peter and Paul got out and preached the gospel a bit, but did, you know, were they really very successful at that? Well, I want to uh, do a survey of the gospels and demonstrate that I believe Jesus did prepare his disciples well through his example and through his teaching, prepared his disciples for cross-cultural proclamation of the gospel. And likewise, as we encounter the Great Commission ourselves, I believe that God has prepared us. Maybe, maybe we don't realize it, but upon reflection, I think we can find that God has prepared each one of us in unique ways to fulfill the Great Commission. So let's look at what Jesus did to prepare his disciples. Uh, was the Great Commission given at the end of his ministry out of the blue as something his disciples were not anticipating, or did he prepare them for it? Jesus did prepare his disciples through his example of ministry to foreigners. And let me just give you some examples. Early on in his ministry, in the, uh, Matthew chapter 8, we have this story of Jesus getting into a boat with the disciples, going across the lake to the Decapolis area, and healing a demon-possessed man. Then they get back into the boat and head back. All Jesus did in that entire trip was to heal one demon-possessed man. Now, what was the ethnicity of that man? We can gather several clues. One is the name of the place, Decapolis. That's not a Hebrew name. Uh, that's a Greek name, the Ten Cities. 
uh, a Greek sounding name for the city. Another clue, they raised pigs there. Jews pigs. Uh, and they were, these people got upset when the demons left the demon-possessed man and entered the herd of pigs and the pigs ran into the lake and were drowned. They all got angry at Jesus and told him to go away. Uh, that would indicate that this is a Gentile settlement. Um, and then Jesus, when the, when the demon-possessed man was healed, he asked if he could go back with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go back to your people and proclaim what great things the Lord has done for you. Uh, indicating that this man was of that area. He was probably a Greek man. And we have evidence later on in Jesus' ministry that Greeks started coming and asking for more from Jesus. And the Greek uh, area of Decapolis about Jesus and what great things he had done. Jesus also ministered to Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, if you know your history, were not uh, people that the Jews associated with. The Samaritans were descendants of the various Persian peoples that the king of Assyria had settled into the northern kingdom after he had gotten rid of the Jews from Israel. Uh, he settled all these foreign people in. That was kind of part of his policy, uh, his way of maintaining political power was by displacing different ethnic peoples. And he was able to, to maintain better control as he conquered these different nations. Uh, the, and as the story goes in um, 2 Kings chapter 18, after settling these foreigners in, that they were worshiping all these different idols, uh, God sent lions in to, and they, the lions were killing people. And so the king said, "Well, maybe we need to. Maybe we've upset the God of Israel." So he brought in some priests from Israel to add to, in addition to all the idolatry, add also the worship of Jehovah. And uh, I don't. Uh, Apparently, the lion problem went away to some extent. But uh, what happened was these people uh, integrated some of the Jewish teachings and traditions and kept their idol worship and all the other pagan things, and it became a big hodgepodge religiously and ethnically there in the city of Samaria and, and its environs. And, so the, and these were the very people that after the southern kingdom had been taken out into captivity into uh, Chaldea, and then they came back to resettle under Ezra and Nehemiah, it was the same, it was those Samaritans which opposed the Jews when they started trying to rebuild Jerusalem. So there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as people that had, had distorted the word of God and that were totally messed up religiously. But Jesus interacted with Samaritans. Uh, the, the most famous example is when he met the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He encounters this woman, the disciples. He sends them into the city to get lunch. And he has this conversation with this woman at the well. And as the conversation unfolds, Jesus tells this woman that he is the Messiah. Um, and then tells her to go, go into the city and get, get her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he said, that's right. You've had several husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband either. Uh, and she said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Uh, 
rightly so. Um, but she goes back into Samaria, and uh, let's, let's look at that in John chapter 4. The disciples also come back in the meantime with lunch. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know of. And they say, wait, did he get lunch while we were gone? Uh, and then he tells them, uh, I'm going to have to uh, look for a minute here. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Now, Jesus may have been speaking figuratively here, uh, to you know, figuratively look at the world and see that there are people that, that are ripe for harvesting into God's kingdom. But just think, what, uh, what would have happened literally if the disciples had lifted up their eyes and looked down the road? What would they have seen? They would have seen the woman at the well leading a whole crowd of Samaritans from the village coming back. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, look, these Samaritans, they're on their way here and they are going to be reaped into God's kingdom. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And it goes on in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Here Jesus is ministering cross-culturally with Samaritans right in front of his disciples, preparing them uh, for cross-cultural sharing of the gospel. Uh, he, Jesus also ministered to a Samaritan with the uh, ten lepers, the ten lepers came, he healed them, they went back, one returned and said thank you to Jesus. The one who returned, the scriptures tell us, was a Samaritan. What about Canaanites, the, the wicked pagan people that Joshua was supposed to drive out of the land uh, and that the Jews were not to have had anything to do with, but they ended up making treaties with them and it led them into all kinds of sin and uh, straying from God. What about Canaanites? Did Jesus teach his disciples to minister to them? In Matthew 15, we have just such an example. In this case, Jesus is no longer even in Israel. He's taken all his disciples outside of Israel up into Phoenicia, into uh, the, uh, where, Tyre, is it? Matthew chapter 15, uh, Jesus, uh, verse 21, Jesus went away and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away. She's shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What's going on here? Uh, Was Jesus... uh, Did Jesus intend to be taken at face value when he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? We've already seen he has not only ministered to the the Israelites, he has ministered to Greeks and to Samaritans. And here he is interacting with a Canaanite woman. What's going on here? Uh, Do we have... An example of Jesus telling a lie here? Uh, Do we have an example of Jesus being unkind? Uh, Isaiah said, you know, a a smoldering uh, reed he will not snuff out. Uh, We will not bruise smoldering wick he will not snuff out. But here we have him calling a woman a dog. Did he intend for that to be taken at face value? We may have debates about exactly how to interpret this, but I believe this was a test. I believe Jesus was testing his disciples, throwing out some cliches that they had probably heard as Jews about how bad Gentiles were, and watching his disciples to see how they responded. Are they willing to interact with a non-Jewish woman here? Uh, How are they going to respond to this cliche? And to the woman, uh, he was looking for faith. She passed the test. She kept after him. And her faith in him uh, was rewarded. And he said, uh, your daughter will be healed. The disciples failed the test. They were egging him on. (laughs) Send her away. Send her away. Uh, how this must have grieved Jesus' heart to see that Jesus' his disciples were not ready yet. They hadn't gotten the picture yet. They weren't ready to minister cross-culturally yet. Um, Greeks, Samaritans, Canaanites, what about Romans? Surely not the Romans, the, the oppressors of Israel uh, who were holding them under their thumb and... Uh, Well, Romans 2, Matthew 8, we have an interaction with a Roman centurion. This is being, you know, an army captain, over a hundred Roman soldiers. Jesus uh, interacts with him, talks with him, and the Roman soldier says uh, that he trusts that Jesus could heal his slave without even coming and seeing his slave. He could just do it from a distance, send the commands, and it'll be done. Jesus said, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Now, how do you believe his Jewish Jewish disciples took that statement? There is not a single Jew that has as much faith as this Roman Gentile. Uh, That that must have shaken the disciples up a bit, you think? Um, Jesus was, was saying, this man's faith is unbelievable. It's greater than any Jew's faith I've seen yet. And then Jesus goes on to say, uh, there will be many who come from east and west and who will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Jesus is saying that there are going to be Gentiles 
in heaven, sitting with the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while there are Jews that are going to get cast into hell. His disciples are standing right there watching all of this. Was he preparing them for cross-cultural ministry? Was he preparing them for a time when the gospel was going to explode into all the world? You better believe it. Jesus' teaching also uh, taught uh, consistently the expectation that he wanted the gospel to go beyond the Jews out into all the world. And not only did Jesus model how to interact with Gentiles, he, he taught his disciples. Uh, one such case is in Mark 11. This is the time when Jesus got angry. In Mark 11, Jesus walks into the temple, sees all the buying and selling that's going on in the temple, and starts driving the uh, money changers and buyers and sellers out of the temple courts. Why was he angry? Uh, his statement in Mark 11 tells us. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus certainly was upset about uh, poor financial business practices. But the place in which this was happening was also important. I believe that uh, Jesus' statement, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, uh, is key to understanding why Jesus got so angry. Gentiles were not allowed to enter the inner court of the temple to bring their worship. They could come to the outer court. However, at this time in history, the Jews had filled up the outer courts with money-changing tables and, and uh, animal stalls and uh, where they were buying and selling. Now, the buying and selling was not unbiblical. Uh, in the, where the tithe was instituted in Deuteronomy um, 16, Deuteronomy 14. The tithe is instituted and God specifically says... If you're coming from far away, and there were many people by this time in history that were coming from all over the Roman Empire into Jerusalem to, to worship. Uh, and the, the, in Deuteronomy it says, if you come from far away, then sell what you want to sacrifice. Take your money in hand and take it to Jerusalem and there buy the animal to sacrifice at the altar. Uh, and this saved, you know, people from having to drag goats and sheep across the Mediterranean Ocean in order to worship God. Uh, that was legitimate. But for them to set this stuff up inside the temple and prevent Gentiles from being able to come near to the presence of God made Jesus angry. It's in the parables, too. Matthew 21, the landowner and the vineyard. Jesus uses the parables to show his disciples that there's going to come a time when the gospel is going to be opened out wide to all the peoples of the earth. And it's not going to be confined to the Jews. Matthew 21, we have this uh, parable of the vine growers. The vine growers, uh, the, the, the landowner builds the vineyard and digs the vat and sets it all up, then rents it out to people, to tenants who will take care of the vineyard. And the landowner goes on a trip. He sends messengers in to gather the, uh, his rightful dues, his pay, 
from the produce of the vineyard. And they mistreat and they kill his messengers. Finally, he sends his son and they kill his son too. And then what does Jesus say? What will that landowner do? Well, the answer was, he's going, to dis- he's going to get rid of the tenants and bring set in new people who will bring him the fruit thereof. And the obvious application was, these Jewish people, they were going to be removed, and God was going to give the kingdom to non-Jewish people. This was teaching his disciples, preparing them for uh, a, a new explosion of the gospel throughout all the world. Um, when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, Luke 4 talks about that. The people in his hometown say, show us a miracle. Show us some of these great things that you've been doing in all the other, in, in other cities. And Jesus said, uh, I will not do a miracle here, but a miracle was done for the, for the Phoenician widow in Zarephath, and he, he starts listing these Gentiles that God did miracles for. Uh, what was, why? Why is this? Again, I believe he was preparing his disciples for the realization that God uh, intended his blessings to go to Gentiles as well. In Matthew 24, Jesus and his disciples are talking about the end times. His disciples say, you know, what are the signs of the end of the age? When, you, uh, when is the kingdom going to come and all that? And, and the many signs you've probably, you know, remember from that passage, the sun turning, I mean, the, the moon turning red and there being wars and all this stuff. And in that list is a significant statement in Matthew 24, 14. It says, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus was teaching his disciples that he expected the gospel was going to be preached to all nations as a witness to all peoples before the end. Uh, He also states his expectation indirectly with the woman uh, that came and anointed his feet, with oil, uh, with the perfume uh, before his death. In Matthew 26, she, uh, he says uh, at the end of this, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of. Wherever this is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of. And here we're reading it today uh, on the other side of the world. Uh, and, and we think about the way that the gospel has, has grown and spread throughout the world over these last couple of millennia. You see, when Jesus gave his great commission at the end of, the, of his ministry, he had prepared his disciples for it through his teaching and through his examples. And then when he gave the great commission, he didn't just give it once. He gave it at least four times, maybe five. Uh, in Matthew 28, I'll just run through the, uh, what I found. This passage we're reading, it says it was in a mountain in Galilee. John chapter 20, uh, where Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That was done in the upper room without Thomas in the room. In Mark 16, the famous one, uh, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. That was done with Thomas in the room, in the upper room. So that's at least three occasions. 
and then there's at least a fourth occasion uh, in Acts that Luke records in Acts where Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the most parts of the earth. That was on the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, not in Galilee. So at least four different occasions, Jesus gave the great command. This wasn't one time, one time shut and he was gone. He gave it multiple times after his resurrection to his disciples. And his disciples took it seriously. And the book of Acts, it only traces the work of Peter and, uh, and Paul. As uh, Paul preached the gospel, it says, in all of Asia. And he was making inroads into Europe by the time Acts is closing. Uh, Peter and Philip, uh, the uh, Acts was at chapter 8, traces mass conversions of Samaritans into the kingdom. Uh, Thomas, who was doubting Thomas, was so convinced by what he saw in Jesus uh, after the resurrection that he traveled all the way to the southern tip of India. And there are churches there still today which trace their heritage back to the Apostle Thomas. Matthew uh, and Mark are both said to have gone on down into, Mark went into Egypt, set up a seminary. Matthew went down into Ethiopia, which became the first Christian nation. Andrew went north to Scythia, uh, evangelizing Russians. Um, Bartholomew evangelized Arabia. John spent much time in Turkey. Others took the gospel to Syria and Persia. In their lifetime, the apostles made tremendous headway in spreading the gospel throughout all the world. In fact, by the time they died, there was a church in every Roman province in the world. Uh, and one-sixth of the world's population had heard the gospel by the time the disciples died. Can you imagine that? Uh, Twelve disciples, maybe you could expand it to the larger 72 in their lifetime, evangelized one-sixth of the world's population. That is amazing. When you think of uh, the dedication, they gave their lives for it. Most of the disciples were martyred. Well, uh, did they finish the Great Commission? Is it still for us today? Uh, I say not for two reasons. One, the Great Commission's wording makes it self-perpetuating. If you look at, at the uh, Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, what was the last thing Jesus commanded them? Go make disciples and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So uh, if they're going to be faithful to that, they're going to, at the end of their teaching, pass on the same great commission. Jesus said, now you must go and make disciples and teach them all that I've commanded you. Those disciples must go and teach their disciples all that Jesus commanded them and their disciples and so on and so on. It's, it's self-perpetuating. Uh, the very wording that Jesus used indicates that it is still for us to fulfill today. Second reason is that it is not fulfilled today. Um, although there are churches existing in every political nation of the world, uh, the Great Commission was not merely given in terms of political nations. Uh, it was given in terms of uh, creation in the Mark uh, accounts, preach the gospel to all creation, every creature. 
which would indicate more of a population concept rather than a national concept. Uh, and in, in this passage here, Matthew 28, Jesus said, all the nations, Greek, pantata ethne. Ethne is the word we get our, our word ethnic from. And when you look at its use throughout the Bible, uh, it becomes clear it's not speaking of political nations, but of uh, ethnic groupings. And there may be hundreds of ethnic groupings within one political nation. Uh, in fact, the World Christian Encyclopedia breaks down, enumerates 12,600 different ethnic groups in the world today out of the 200 some odd nations. There's 12,600 ethnic groupings. Uh, 30% of those ethnic groups today uh, have not been evangelized much less have they been made disciples of. There is much left to do. If you look at it in terms of uh, the, every, all, every creature, the population, one third of the population of the world has never heard the gospel even one time. So uh, praise the Lord for the, may, we may be two thirds of the way there in fulfilling the Great Commission. Speaking in terms of uh, you know, sociology and missiology, maybe we're two-thirds there. I'm not God, and I can't tell you when Jesus is coming back and when the uh, Great Commission will be fulfilled, but we can use some of these indicators that God has given us the, the intellect to discern. Uh, and there is work left to do. But as I push this on you, <laughs> this Great Commission, or maybe other people have also pushed it on you. You ought to go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, does that make you feel like a kid that's been put in the driver's seat of the car and you're not really sure what to do with it? Uh, it could be kind of a, a, a scary thought to be thinking of, you know, do I have to leave the country or uh, how do I you know, learn another language or share the gospel with a, a Muslim terrorist? Or, uh, it, that, that can be a scary thought. Um, but I want to encourage you that I believe just as Jesus systematically prepared his disciples for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, Jesus also has done that in our lives. And it may be the disciples didn't even realize it until they started coming up onto the opportunities. Maybe, you know, when Philip went to Samaria, he didn't realize how much Jesus had prepared him until he got there and said, oh, okay, what did Jesus do at the village uh, with those people where the woman at the well came by? And, you know, maybe he drew from that. Maybe he didn't realize it until the time he needed to use it. Uh, and that may be the case here. Let me, let me just throw out some ideas about how, may, how God may have prepared you for uh, fulfilling the Great Commission. One, I believe, is true of all believers. In John 16, 13, Jesus promised that when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is in every one of us who is a believer, and that Holy Spirit will guide us. We have that promise. And Jesus promised in Matthew 28, uh, Lo, I am with you always. Uh, the fulfillment of that promise is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and guides us into doing God's will. Um, what's another thing? Uh, do you, how many of you speak English? Well, 
Uh, listen, that is a tremendous resource. I could place probably any one of you within three months on a mission field anywhere in the world teaching English. Uh, that is, it's the language that is in most demand. Uh, people all over the world want to learn English and you're experts at it. Uh, even countries that would not allow a missionary would be glad for you to come and teach English. And uh, what, what is a great English document that you could use to teach English? <laughs> um, and you don't have to go, you don't even have to leave the country in order to, to meet people that want to learn English. Uh, I don't know exactly the demographics of this area, but in most places there are immigrant communities. Uh, either uh, students studying at a, at a local college or uh, immigrants that have come in and are, are settling in the United States that want to learn English. And that's a tremendous uh, asset you have there. Finances. You may not feel wealthy, uh, but in comparison with the rest of the world, we are greatly wealthy. And God wants us to use the resources he's given us to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, support missionaries, support mission projects. How many of you have a complete Bible? What a tremendous resource that is. Most Christians in the world don't have a whole Bible. Uh, I hear all, often stories of these Chinese evangelists who are going around China sharing the gospel, and all they have is one page of a Bible because there just aren't enough Bibles to go around. And they use that one page and, and uh, teach from it all they can. And uh, they're faithful with the little bit that they've got. But the wealth we have, you probably don't need, not only have a Bible, but you probably also have Bible commentaries and other Bible study books. Uh, we have a wealth of knowledge here. How can we share that with the rest of the world? Uh, it's a, a constant request uh, that, that American missionaries are increasingly getting involved in is education of national leadership national Christian leadership. What about your children, our grandchildren? Uh, could God have given you children and grandchildren in order that you might send one of them out as a missionary? Uh, pray and ask God if he might uh, send out one of your children or grandchildren to become a missionary. Prayer. We have uh, many examples of prayer in the Bible. Uh, and we should be praying. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, let thy kingdom come. And I believe that is speaking of the increase of God's kingdom in all the world. We should be praying that more and more and more people throughout the world will be acknowledging that Jesus is the king. Uh, that is a world missions prayer. And we can, we can flesh that out as we pray specifically for different missionaries and different mission organizations, different mission projects. Um, we should be praying for God's kingdom to come. And there may be other ways that God's prepared you. There may be certain country that just, whenever you hear about it, it just interests you. And you hear about it on the news or whatever. That could be God's way of, of preparing you uh, for at least to pray for them, maybe to go someday yourself. Uh, there's a, a growing movement of uh, second career people uh, going to mission fields because the uh, age is greatly respected in most other cultures. Um, you could become a missionary uh, at age 40, 50, 60. <laughs> I know many people that have done it. 
Jesus promised to be with us even to the end of the age. What is that end going to look like? Will the Great Commission be fulfilled? Uh, the answer is yes. We get a glimpse of the fulfillment of it in the book of Revelation. God shows this vision to the Apostle John. And uh, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, he sees this group of people singing a new song. You are worthy, speaking of Jesus, worthy to take the book and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, every language, and people, and nation. Every language, people, nation. Two chapters later, Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and look, a great multitude which no man, no man could number of all nations and kindreds and tribes and languages stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. Will the Great Commission be fulfilled? Will every nation be discipled? Yes, some from every nation will be discipled. And John got to see a preview of that in heaven. Every nation. Um, we can engage in the fulfillment of the Great Commission with the full confidence that God will see it through to completion. God will make it successful because this is his project. Missions is what God wants accomplished in this world. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us work to do, uh, given us meaning for life on this earth. And I thank you that you would even stoop to include us in, the, uh, in participation with this great plan that you have for the world of proclaiming your salvation among all the nations. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how you have prepared us for participation in that mission. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to obey you. I pray that you would give us your grace, that we would not be hypocrites, knowing the right thing to do but not doing it, but that we would be faithful to obey you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.